This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. I've been thinking a lot about um, vaccines lately. Oh yeah, I don't know what I don't know why. What what is it? What what are they? I don't. Well, um, just like magic, you know, Captain America. Yeah, yeah, he was a skinny kid, and then he got vaccines. Oh, and that was really strong. <laughs> side effects, and that was really strong. Is that can, why he's autistic as well? He's <laughs> no, Captain America's not autistic. Is he not? That's Bucky. No, um. I've been thinking a lot about vaccines and how cool they are. Um, and it got me thinking about uh, also the fact that we're doing this episode on the NHS and I love the NHS and I'm vaccinated now through the NHS. I know you're still waiting and it's a sore topic, so I'm sorry you brought yeah, it Yeah, they opened it up to people just a little bit older than me and then closed ah. it. <laughs> no Steves. We're allowed to have one. <laughs> uh, but just like, Do you let Steve Rogers thinking, get the vaccine? <laughs> bring it all back. Do you... Like if you could vaccinate yourself against anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if it yeah, wasn't yeah, just, yeah. obviously like influenza and stuff like COVID, yeah. like these are all great. But if you could vaccinate against, like what would you like, vaccinate against? And I mean literally anything. Dislocating my knee. That's a good, oh yeah. Because I don't do, like doing you? that, but it happens. Yeah. But you were looking for something uh, funnier. <laughs> More, no, that's good. Like, hey, Steve, Steve, look at me. There's nothing funnier to me than you dislocating your knee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's not the problem. But maybe more like, like for me, I've got uh, like beard dandruff. Oh, I would yeah, love to vaccinate bastard. myself against beard dandruff. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. use beard oil. I use moisturizer. I've got a whole kit, but I just still, these little flaky flakes yeah. just get everywhere. I got so a black desk and at the end of the day, I don't look down. I just brush it off. <laughs> you just snorted like a lion of coke. <laughs> <laughs> and you got the high it gives you. Yeah. Or another one I was thinking about, or that, so there's a moment from when I was in second class. So I would have been what, eight? Is that second class? I don't know. Is it I don't, seven, I don't eight? Know. Anyway, around that time in my life, I accidentally called my teacher, Mr. Lenehan. I called him Mammy. So not only, it's not like I called him Dad. Yeah, I yeah. called my male teacher Mammy. And I still think about that. So I would like to vaccinate against that. Thank you very much. That, either no, take away the memory. That's eternal sunshine away, stuff. <laughs> that's fine. Either take away the memory or some sort of thing that stops me from making those kind of slip ups or give me that. At the same time, you're giving me the MMR measles mumps rubella vaccine just give me one to stop me from calling mr lenahan mammy yeah would be pretty good i was thinking maybe a vaccine so you, you 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 it would be easier to hear people in crowded places but then sometimes that's a boon as well so this could be like one of them vaccines that there's ups and downs you so you want to you want a vaccine well now we're not we just talking we're just talking about magic superpowers. Su- today, serums yeah yeah that's that's fine that's what i mean vaccine is an abstract concept ask any doctor <laughs> despite the fact we talked to ireland's most prominent scientist political scientist communicator we're still talking bullshit like this <laughs> vaccines <laughs> are you know just, Look, it's, it's real, fine man. to it's fine to spread vaccine lies if they're very complimentary of vaccines because <laughs> every you always hear the other side you always hear the, the the things that like are to the detriment of vaccines but you never hear people lying in a positive way about vaccines my uncle did except with us my uncle um, got his vaccine up in Donegal and he was put into the little room that you have to go in where they they watch you for 15 minutes to make sure your head doesn't explode or something like that yeah and uh he was sitting there and because he's a funny fucker quote unquote he decided <clears throat> to um to shout out really loud god it's awful you know and the, the middle-aged women beside him were like, what? What's that? Oh, you're not allowed to drink for six weeks after getting the vaccine. <laughs> like, what? What? That's bullshit. Shut up. Uh, you're talking shite. And he's like, no, no, no. Seriously, seriously. That nurse over there told me. And then a random fella 
un, unrelated to these people from the same town mm. uh, realized what was going on and goes, no, 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 no. So you're wrong. You're wrong. It's only women that are six week. Men are only two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> then the nurse came over, looked at my uncle and goes, how long have you been waiting? 12 minutes. Yeah, that's enough. Get out. Get out. Get out <laughs> and he collapsed three minutes later down the road. Unrelated. Unrelated. Because <laughs> he had a drink and he should have waited two weeks. <laughs> Could you... Vaccine against like hangovers, but that'd just oh. be like having a small little bit of alcohol, you know, like, but then that's just drinking. Because <laughs> people do that. I do it all the time. I feel a bit bad that this episode is going to be promoted by the Doctors Association United Kingdom and we premised it with bullshit talk about vaccines. I mean, not that bad, but a little bit bad. It's all good things. These are all good reasons to get vaccines. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely there. Yes, welcome to What on Politics, new listeners. We are the official podcast of the NHS. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. It's a different NHS. What is it? It's uh, a new... Hump sounds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel bad for saying that. Well, look. Uh, no, we are a political explainer show. Um, <laughs> oh, we swear. We really are. We probably promise you probably might not have guessed it based on the first, I don't know, six minutes, <laughs> however long we've been recording. But we, pro- we, we promise we are. We're just getting all the silly out of the way because we've got a really good episode with a really fantastic guest talking we about... We only made like two jokes. We only made like two jokes, but that's why we're front-loading with quote-unquote jokes here. Uh, yeah, this is one of my favourite things within the sphere of politics, the NHS and the idea of socialised medicine in general is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Glad to talk about it. Sad that there's so many sad things within the topic, but you know... It makes for a good episode, I think. Yeah. Before we explain who is our guest, we should tell you, kind listeners, that there is more Wadam content out there. If you go to Headstuff Plus, um, link is in the show notes. Show notes. You can join up. <laughs> show notes. You can join up um, for a small fee of five euros plus VAT and you will get access to a whole bunch of content. Yeah. Including new stuff coming soon. Yeah, we're going to record some, actually, a couple right after after this. So there'll be some new stuff up there soon. Yeah, and it's not just from us, it's from all the other wonderful Head Stuff podcast shows as well. So by signing up, you'll get access to a feed of lots of bonus stuff. You get access to everybody, but if you only want to give us money, just press our picture. I, whisp- <laughs> I whispered that quietly. Well, anyway, we need, to, we need to earn that. We need to earn that with, with another great episode right now. Again, talking about the NHS with a wonderful guest. Dr. Ellen Welch, uh, GP. Now you said you wanted to specify what a GP is. Yes, because our, because it's not the same. No, li- listeners outside. Well, they, it's the same job, but just to clarify for mm. listeners outside Ireland or the UK, we call our family doctors GPs, general practitioners. So I mean, mm. some places might call them, but I know, in, I know in America sometimes when you go, I see my GP, they'd be like, "What?" You just go, "Oh, the doctor." You know, the normal doctor that you go to yeah. for small things or big things, but like. Usually people's first point of contact with medicine. Yeah. Where'd my foot go? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have one yesterday? Yes, I did. All right. I'll refer you to a specialist. It's generally how it goes. Sure. Something like that. It's mostly a good 72% of the the walk-ins are just from people. The hop-ins are just from people who don't know where their foot has gone. So also just to clarify for listeners outside of the UK, and Ireland knows about it because we're fierce jealous, but the United Mm. Kingdom has a particularly 
good health service that is public, mm-hmm. uh, public, public owned, public run for the people. That is essentially nearly one hundred percent free, which is great. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's the best thing. Yep. It's uh, like I, I get, you know, I'm on prescription medication and I only have to pay the, um, and we talk about it, the cursory fee that you need to pay, it's like the prescription fee. And it's, you know, pittance compared to this. I was on this medication when I was in America and paying for it here and paying for it now, there's like a different, it's like 20 times less or something. It's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. So it's a very good system. One of the best parts of living, me living here in the UK is, is the NHS. And to talk about it again, yeah, sorry, Dr. Ellen Welsh, uh, GP and editorial lead at Doctors Association United Kingdom and also author of the NHS, the story so far. So it takes a lot of boxes for in terms of getting, you know, a nice condensed history uh, on the NHS, but also what's happening with it today. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Let's just get into it, I think. Hello. Oh, let me just get rid of this. Right. I've just been handed a baby. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm really sorry. Do you know the baby? I'm going to have to deal with that as well. Say again. I do know the baby. So just give me two, two seconds. I'm really yeah, sorry. Yeah, no please. Take go your ahead. time. Okay. They've taken the baby away. I'm so sorry. No, okay. Give, so give the baby a let's, microphone. Let's go ahead. We could give the baby a microphone. You might not say much, but... Might have some. some How are you guys? It's great, we're great. We're just talking about how nice your the logo is for the Doctors Association. Okay. Yeah, it is. I don't know why that's come up on my screen, but there we go. I only realised recently it's it's a stethoscope in the shape of a heart. Yeah, I only realised that recently. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that's like you know the the Walt Disney thing. I had no idea what the W was supposed to be for ages. I thought it was why is this weird D thing there? <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for joining us, Ellen. Um, we'll get straight into it. So, what were health services like in the UK before the NHS? Was it so unbelievably different that we would hard to recognize it now like could anyone get access to healthcare or did you have to have a million pounds in your wallet like did it cost you an arm and a leg to save a toe i guess it depends how far back you go in but essentially yes it was very different and access depended largely on on ability to pay so if we go i guess back to victorian times it there was a patchwork of services available, varying in quality. There was a poor law in place which set out the responsibility of local areas to help those in need. And that was essentially through the workhouse. So well, we're all familiar with Oliver Twist mm. and that kind of epitomised what the workhouse was like. People were scared of it. Um, it supplied basic food, shelter and health care in return for manual labour. But it wasn't a particularly nice place to be. So there was the workhouses for the very poor. And then there was a mishmash of voluntary hospitals and there were different voluntary hospitals depending on, on the illness. So if you had money, you could pay for the best care. If you didn't, you could pay for a bit of it in between. But it was very different to how it is now. Like if a middle class person, some, like a shopkeep got ill, would they be able to get decent healthcare, or would they still have to be the struggle to like lose out on other normal things just to be able to pay the doctor? So I guess it depends on, on what's available in the area. So the voluntary hospitals, they would be dependent on people um, for poor people who couldn't afford it, they would have to get a sponsor to go there. But if a shopkeeper had enough money to pay for care, then yes, they could go there. The very rich asked had their own personal doctors who would visit them at home most of the time. But compared to now, and obviously it's free free for all, it's, it was a completely dif- different landscape. Mm. And so if we view that as, say, like the dark ages of healthcare in the UK, at what point did, um, like, when did the, the the genesis and the birth of the NHS take place? Like, who whose idea was it and what was, like, the motivating factors for it? 
Well, well, it was Anya and Bevan who was credited with with the formation, but it was several years in the making. So it probably started in the war when there was an emergency healthcare response to deal with the mass, mass casualties of war, and all of the services grouped together to to form this emergency response to help people. And I think that made people realise what working together could look like, essentially. Um, Actually, going back a little bit further, interestingly, during the pandemic of 1918, which is often forgotten from the history book. There's been more pandemics? There's there's been more. Yeah, so 1918 was the last big one. It was the Spanish flu pandemic was what it was called. And um, that was just at the end of the First World War. And a lot of people in the war died of the flu, but it was seen as as kind of a failing to die of illness. So it wasn't as reported at the time. So a lot of the soldiers of, who'd, at war who died of flu on their graves, it was said they died in battle when they didn't really, it was the flu. Mm. Um, but basically that, that unveiled how bad health, health services were at the time. And in 1918-ish, I think, the Ministry of Health was formed in the UK. And it was from, from that that the, the idea of a national health service began. Yeah, so the beverage report was 1942, and this was when one of the um, Sir William Beveridge wrote his report to basically look for ways to improve society, and it, it tackled the five giants of the welfare state: so want, disease, squalor, ignorance, and idleness. And he started his report basically was the framework for the NHS, which then Bevan built on. Um, and it came into formation when Bevan was in power um, after that. What, what were, sorry, what were those five things again? So want, disease, squalor, ignorance and idleness. Wow. I mean, I, I've got the last <laughs> two still, but I haven't fixed that one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Bevan was, was from, from South Wales. He, he'd worked down the mines prior to his involvement in politics and he, he was no stranger to poverty and disease. And his ethos was very much that society becomes healthier knowing that they have access to to being treated when they're ill. So it was 1948, obviously, that Bevan launched the NHS in Manchester um, in what's now called Trafford General Hospital. And then basically overnight, all of the hospitals in the UK went from being completely separate to being part of the NHS. So the day-to-day working wouldn't have changed, but it was the, the overall being part of the NHS, being employed by the state, which is what changed, and obviously access for all for free. Were there any big hurdles in when they were trying to set that up? So did like, um, when they were taking over these hospitals, were the private, like they were obviously pre- previously owned by someone else, even if they were like voluntary run. Yeah, did the, sure. did the private doctors say, no, <laughs> we don't want to work for you? Like how, yeah, how, for sure. well, how did they get them into a headlock and, and drag them into this new public system? Well, it was the doctors who, who caused the most fuss, to be honest. The BMA was worried that people wouldn't be, doctors wouldn't be paid appropriately. The voluntary hospitals were worried that they wouldn't have as much control over their services. Um, but basically, the, the Bevan won. And after much negotiation between the BMA and, and themselves, they, they he, he carried through the NHS. The GPs were kept a little bit separate at the beginning. So GPs are were technically, when we say private contractors and GPs are still that today, it's a bit different from private contractors on Harley Street who give you a bill when you when you when you get when you have a consultation. GPs are private contractors, but they work to NHS contracts um, with NHS guidelines. Um, but they they do have some freedom to run their own businesses, but it's within the contract 
today as well as at the beginning, it's within the boundaries of an NHS contract. And what about getting provisions into places that didn't have it before? Was that a struggle like to um, maybe to get it into more of the poorer areas or into the um, more rural areas? Was that a big push at the start of it as well? Well, no, they had no problem with with demand. I think overnight, everyone registered with a doctor. So people who didn't have access to healthcare then had it and were obviously very keen to to get treated for things that they'd maybe left left untreated for years. A lot of festering wounds that they've been like procrastinating on getting addressed for a while. (laughs) So uh, moving on a little bit, Labour lost the general election uh, not long after the the creation of the NHS. Did Churchill try to roll things back, roll back some of that kind of lefty socialist-y progress (laughs) the same way that Trump did with Obamacare? Not really roll it back. I think that would be political suicide to have done that. But certainly Churchill wasn't a fan and um, it, it was it was his government that introduced prescription charges in 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 fifty two I think it was. So I think again the the service was overwhelmed and prescription costs were were huge, even within the first few years. So the charges were introduced of one shilling in nineteen fifty two, and obviously they still are in place today. I think. The current cost of a prescription is nine pounds, nine pounds thirty-five. All right. So even sorry, I, I like myself. I'm from Ireland, so um, we we pay for everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in the NHS, when you get a prescription off your GP, you don't pay for the GP visit, but then when you go into the pharmacy at the moment, you have to give them nine pounds thirty-five. So it depends. Some people are exempt based on certain conditions, but then the vast majority of the population, if you're not exempt, pays per item nine pound thirty-five. And there's obviously different ways. If you get lots of prescriptions, you can you can there's different charges, but the standard cost of a prescription is is nine thirty five. Um, to zoom forward, then a couple of decades. So we did have there's obviously government changes every couple of years over the couple of decades. We're talking the the fifties, sixties, seventies, and then into the eighties, we had. Um, I have it down as the next big balls Tory Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She came in. She was very much a free marketeer. She disliked anything that didn't have, um, that wasn't super shiny free market and Rand kind of um, fun times, basically. So when she went in, did she try to do anything with the NHS? Or again, would it have been political suicide to try? Well, I think anyone trying to get rid of the NHS is political suicide, but she certainly did bring in the internal market, which... which basically opened up the gates for privatisation. So I think she was famously asked if, if she trusted the NHS enough to use it. And the answer was no, she paid for her own private medical insurance. Um, so yeah, the same way that she privatised a lot of things, she, this internal market basically, um, internal market is when the, the GPs in primary care are able to purchase their their healthcare from the 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 providers who are think people like the hospitals, health charities. So instead of just referring to your local hospital, the, the providers can bid to the GPs as to which which services the GPs want to use, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so it, instead of just referring to your local hospital, you had the choice of many different people. And over the years, this has become increasingly open to privatisation. And especially since 2012, it, basically private companies can bid for NHS services which is why, fast forward to today, we see the NHS track and trace during the pandemic was an entirely private run company, um, which didn't do so well. (laughs) And millions were spent on that, which possibly could have been spent in better ways. Absolutely. Um, So you've mentioned now a few times about how 
you know, what, rolling back or dismantling or doing anything, you know, to the detriment of the NHS is political suicide. And we've even seen it with stuff like, you know, the Conservative Party today, like one of the tenets of the Brexit discussion was about like protecting the NHS and like getting more money for the NHS and applauding mm-hmm. and lauding the NHS. Do we think that the NHS, does this mean the NHS was, will be around forever or do we think there are, like like you were saying with the privatisation, are there other more kind of subtle ways in which they're trying to undercut or roll back or, you know, make the NHS less than what, what it could be? Well, for sure. I don't think the, the NHS, the name is ever going to go away, mm. but it's going to be very different to the NHS of, of 1948. Uh, even in the time I've been a doctor, it's, it's changed quite a lot, but I guess the founders couldn't have anticipated the changes that the NHS has seen. It's basically a vast organisation and I think it's the the fifth largest employer in the world. It deals with one million patients every 36 hours is is the stat. That's probably different now. But there's been decades of reorganisation which have shaped it into what it is today. And each time a new government comes into power, each successive government seems to make a reorganisation, spending quite a lot of money, reinventing the wheel in a lot of instances um but yeah i think it's it, it is going to be around probably for a long time and it, it probably will survive until it's 100 but it may not be the nhs that that we know it know it as today mm. um do so talking about the united kingdom and its potential um, breakdown, breakup, change is quite fashionable at the moment. So then in the context of the NHS, does it work differently in the different nations? Like is the NHS in Scotland different to the NHS in England to the one in Northern Ireland? That's right, it is. Um, well, actually just talking about prescription charges, that's probably the, the, the biggest difference. So in NHS England, we have the prescription charges. However, in Scotland and Wales, I'm not sure about Northern Ireland, but um, certainly Scotland and Wales, they don't pay for prescriptions at all. So it's, it's entirely free for everybody there. And um, yeah, each service is has slightly different guidelines, slightly different ways of running. But obviously it's usually NHS England that we tend to talk about. Um, sorry, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. But um, yeah, it is it is slightly different in, in each of the devolved nations. Why do you think um, England gets more attention? Is it just because it's bigger? Probably because it's bigger, yeah. So... Let's talk about the big sniffling elephant in the room who's lost his sense of smell and taste. <laughs> the past year has been, you know, to say the least, a bit of a roller coaster from the fears of the NHS being overwhelmed and flattening the curve to, you know, clapping every Tuesday, every Thursday at eight o'clock yeah. to the best mass vaccination program among large countries to like how have all these things together like affected the NHS? What does it look like now compared to, you know, a little over a year ago and how will it, you know, what will the impact be for the future? Well, obviously it's, it's had a massive impact and I think the NHS was struggling before the pandemic for a variety of reasons but the pandemic has just been the kind of final nail in the coffin in some ways. Certainly I'm a GP and at the minute GP services are, are massively struggling. At the beginning of the pandemic we were protect, protecting hospitals from being overwhelmed but now we're seeing certainly GP services being overwhelmed. A, a recent report I think showed that there's um, now emergency levels of burnout in staff and that's in all aspects of the NHS from primary care to secondary care. The staff are just burnt out from the exhaustion of the last year. The NHS was underfunded for probably 10 years before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and it, well now it's having its consequences. Mm. This the staff burnout is probably one of the main things at the minute. Certainly overwhelmed within GP services so 
I think at, at the minute, I don't know the exact figures, but certainly GPs are consulting record numbers of patients. However, they've never been more unhappy because a lot of the consultations are still done remotely. So people feel often when they don't see a, pa- a doctor face to face, it's not not a full consultation. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people do need to be seen, but GPs are still seeing people face to face. But just the initial contact is remote, which often people aren't happy about. And then probably worst of all, GPs in particular have borne the brunt of the media um, discontent. And there's a lot of abuse towards staff. There's a lot of um, negativity and morale is, is certainly rock bottom at the moment. What Can you elaborate a bit more on, on when you mean the media discontent? Do you think the media have are are kind of bad actors in the sense that they they generate a lot of unfounded antagonism towards the NHS just for print or well, um, no it's not come from nowhere certainly the the, the tabloids there was, there was a bit of a campaign in, in the Daily Mail for um, GPs to reopen but that um, narrative that GPs are closed it, it it's not true basically there's a few stories where people haven't been able to get access but. The story that GP is closed is is not true. GPs have been open and working through the whole pandemic. Mm. Um, NHS England were a little bit guilty of releasing a statement saying that GPs should be seeing people face to face, but they were the ones who, who who said at the beginning of the pandemic that we needed to work remotely. And I think, um, yeah, there could be more support there from the top, yeah. but certainly the media has fueled a lot of patient discontent and that's translated into certainly more and more reports of, of abuse towards staff there was one surgery that had an arson attack and um, the reports of certainly verbal abuse even physical abuse are, are at all an all-time high mm. and it's, it's it's a pretty grim environment to be working yeah, in really i can't even imagine because you, you hear it across like multiple industries like hospitality and service and like as well about burnout and people dropping out and not returning to their careers but Mm-hmm. can't even imagine how those kind of things would translate then to you know the people who are propping up the entire country for over a year and a yeah. half now um yeah. what and is there anything in, in the way of like a silver lining to like some sort of respite some sort of you know like you know it's these things are so much easier when there is a light at the end of the tunnel does it feel like there's that or does it still very much feel like you're in the throes of it all well Cynically, I think we're probably having maybe the summer respite, but I think everyone is gearing up towards another horrible winter. Mm. Um, and it feels like we need to learn lessons from what's happened before and get ready. But undoubtedly, that probably won't happen. And we'll go into winter again and, and face similar problems. What does getting ready mean? Well, exactly. So what would help is more staff, more money, more time to see patients which is which is a bit difficult really when staff are leaving with levels of burnout that that they have at the moment mm. um but i think the things that could be done as a doctor for nhs staff are just very basic things so at the minute gps work in 12 13 hour days hospital staff are working shifts without a break very basics like being able to have a break for something to eat to go for a wee um to park your car without being charged a fortune at work. Those I mean, if things, you're going to make these unreasonable demands, I don't know what you <laughs> expect, Alan. So, so basic. But I think if the bare basics were covered, that would be a start. Um, I think the staff need to be treated a lot better. Um, mm. People need to be kinder to each other. Verbal abuse is unacceptable, physical abuse even more so. And just these these basics need to be sorted out. And that, that that's 
quite easily done, I think. Is is that the main thrust of the work in the Doctors Association UK? Um, is do you do you guys is that what you're trying to do to educate people to basically treat doctors better and also then to try and lobby government for better conditions as well? Yeah, well, so it's a bit of both. It's it's lobbying for better conditions for healthcare staff, um, in particular doctors, but also just raising awareness of the the, the wider issues within the health service. A big thing internationally and the on the follow from the pandemic that we're saying public policy is going to have to consider is uh, social care. So I know it's not specifically medical mm-hmm. care, and I think in the UK, social care is separate to the NHS. It is, yeah. Yeah. Is that part of, of what we need to consider more in the future? Um, and when I say social care, I guess I'm talking about nursing homes, elderly care, elderly care sure. all that stuff. Is that something that's going to have to be put more forward on the on the agenda? And is there a prospect of the NHS taking over that side of thing in the UK? Well, I agree for sure. It, it, it's it's a massive part of it all. And I think that was one of the, the main problems in the pandemic that a lot of people in nursing homes died when people were discharged too early from hospitals with COVID and they had inadequate PPE. And I think if that was part of the wider health service and it was more joined up, a lot of those problems could have been prevented. Um, And obviously we've got an aging population and we've got more reliance on, on care homes. It needs to be part of the plan. And I agree it should be part of the wider NHS. That's all very sad, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also very proud of us. We're, we're coming towards the end of the interview now, but we didn't. We were very professional. Didn't mention anything about Matt Hancock in this entire discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Given recent news, it could have been the whole thing. We could have scrapped this whole thing and just had a juicy dish session about you know a very tabloidy uh, topic about Matt Hanky Panky Hancock or something like that. But uh, do you look at the Tory government like like how do you? F- like, do you feel frustrated when you when you kind of look at what's what the leadership is like during a time as trying as this? Completely, it's just a, a shambles. The fact that he's he's well, not even getting fired, he's resigning for having an affair. Mm. Surely, there's several more things that he, he could have lost a job for than having a bit of a snog. Yeah. Um, as bad as that is, I just it's, it's the whole thing is, is terrible. He he was doing that while he was instructing the rest of the country to socially distance to to not see their, their dying relatives in hospital and for him to do that is is yeah it's a shambles i wish we could end on a brighter note than i'm kind of sad i brought up matt hancock now <laughs> just, <laughs> that man just in general is just always makes me, me angry and sad yeah anyway but um ellen thank you so much for, for the chat it's been absolutely no wonderful and it makes me love the nhs all the more i got uh, i'm irish just like steve but i've been living in the uk now for four years and I've gotten my first vaccine. I'm oh, well absolutely just gagging for my second. I, I, I'm due to get it on August 2nd, but I got a text from my GP about they're opening walk-in clinics and I got a text during a work meeting and I nearly like told everyone to shut up because I was going to run out to the walk-in clinic before I realised <laughs> I didn't actually qualify because uh, I needed to wait the, wait the eight weeks for the Pfizer. Um, but yeah, I, I adore the NHS with every fibre of my being and it's one of my favourite parts of, of living here and being here. Well, um, me too. So yeah, exactly. So, and th- so thank you for, for not only talking to us today, but all of the good work you've done, um, particularly over no problem, the last right? year and a half. We really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Were you drinking an iced coffee? I am drinking an iced coffee. I was. Gone what are you going to do when you go back to Kildare? You won't have any little custard tarts. You won't have any iced coffees. <laughs> I don't think I was recording to start, but I started this episode by eating a custard tart. <laughs> you did. <laughs>
<laughs> breakfast of podcast champions. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, do. I, I mean, Kildare has coffee. Kildare has ice. I'm sure I can figure it out. No, they don't have ice, no. Oh, do they, they not? No. Since the event. Yeah, since that thing that happened. Since that thing. You know, when... That big magnifying glass that that uh, guy built on... on in Louth. Um, on, <laughs> on Louth, that's just pointing down. Just pointed across, across me into Kildare. No more ice. Anyway, Daz got a great tan, though. Yeah? Yeah. It's just from the magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even outside, but it's like reflecting off his car bonnet into his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> look. Yeah, that was that was a great episode. I, I was tempted to bring up Matt Hancock earlier, but I felt like, no, let's get the bulk of the episode out of the way. Yeah, and again... We'll Clarification for listeners who aren't aware, Matt Hancock, for, until recently the the general the the department head of the minister for health in the United yes. Kingdom, um, he's been getting an awful lot of stick for being an awful bollocks about running the NHS during COVID, and mm. what did done him in the end was a photo of him smooching and grabbing the arse of someone who was his mate, who he got a job mm. and has been working with for years, yeah. and also been working with for years. Yeah, also like. Look, let's not, let's not get into it. This isn't that. I kinda, we're not a, we have journalistic integrity, I think. I care <laughs> I care a bit less that he is... I, I care a bit less that he did the whole COVID breaching of rules thing. Like, you know. I, uh, I care because yeah. he told the whole country, like, you know, you can't go... And rightly so, like, don't do these things. You can't go see your loved ones who are dying. Um, that all like just sorry well, I mean just like in general in general like he's like suppose, he's that he's he should be the one person in the world who has to be or the one person in the UK who's held at a high standard because he's a literal minister for health that's true uh, and that's you know fair. he he shouldn't be and been doing what he was doing it broke the rules that he outlined um, also he's a prick and yeah generally incompetent generally incompetent and again like like Ellen, Dr. Ellen said it's not it's <laughs> what's sickening is it wasn't all of the people who died because of the mismanaged pandemic that done him in it was um, uh, it's some dodgy CCTV Smooch footage yeah anyway look fuck him fuck him <laughs> he's gone now he's gone we well they put it inside each can and he's not going to be much better but sure look sure look um, yeah nationalised healthcare I sure wish Ireland had some of that um, yeah we have we have a terrible system which is the worst of both worlds so we yeah. have a large public health service that costs a fuck ton of money and simultaneously we have a large private health service which also costs a fuck ton of money and neither of them seem to give much efficiencies so what's yeah. the fucking point yeah you're absolutely right the worst of both worlds is the exact right way of putting it yeah. and like Ireland gets, gets lauded a lot for its handling of um, the pandemic but it was mostly because the alternative was annihilation like if it got if it got very bad there's nothing there's not you know it would have crumpled yeah so you know anyway get get socialized healthcare it's it's a good and it's it's written that's written on the bottom of most of my local grant and practice is nhs it's a good and rich you know <laughs> 2018 I said it back then <laughs> right sure There's still, I'm quoting myself <laughs> yes. in the past I, yes. that. Um, I think you know hey do you know what I might add to that va- things that I'd like to vaccine against is probably just bad jokes <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 
a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello everyone and welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Character actor is a supporting actor who specialises in playing unusual, interesting or eccentric characters. For whatever reason, these performances are less concerned with being stars. Because of that, they often take supporting roles in big movies or only play leads in indie films or TV. They're less concerned with their image. They can bounce between heroes or villains. They're chameleons and they often disappear into each role. So you might know the faces, but you might not know the names. So subscribe to us wherever you can subscribe for podcasts and be on the lookout for that to come. And until then, uh, see you later, cinephiles. Bye bye.